League. Goons. Touch them all, Joe! It's only game. Hello and welcome everyone to the show that gets people talking about something else. This is Big Shine Goose. It is episode 31. I am your host Thomas and with me today is the host of Roxy Fever and general Vancouver sports writer. Uh, I'll, I'll give you that title, Jackson. Uh, sure. Jackson McDonald's here. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Yeah, not doing much of that these days. Probably because there's not... I mean... I shouldn't say there's not much to write about. There's a new GM and a new coach, which is nice. But I think after eight years of the same thing, we're all just kind of like kind of watching with bated breath to see what the next move is. So um, plus, I mean, my my shtick was always to just shit on the uh, the old management team. So I'm kind of I feel like a man without a country right now a little bit, even though uh, the product on the ice has been a lot more fun to watch. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to ask. I was going to open with that. Like, how is the, the general feeling? Like, do you feel like, I guess, people in general are more positive, like more annoyingly positive? Yeah. Oh, definitely. There was, there was definitely a moment there where I think people got a little too high on their own supply when they were like 8-0 or whatever. Right, right, right. And now, you know, they've dropped to two to the uh, to two actually good teams, which they haven't really had to, didn't really have to play over that stretch. Uh, it's mostly kind of middling teams or teams in the same sort of stratosphere as them. Um, but I mean, I think everybody is just happy that, you know, the new coach like Bruce Boudreaux, that seems to be having the desired effect. Mm. And then Rutherford saying all the right things seems to kind of understand that, you know, they're two or three years away, which I have a lot of sympathy for people who are frustrated by that because we've been hearing that they're two, three years away for like six years. Right. Um, but you know, it's better to have somebody who knows what they need to do than to just keep kind of going around in a circle over and over again. Um, but the, the frustrating thing is that in at least like on the sort of like blogosphere or on Twitter Mm -hmm. or whatever, like, we're still just having all the same arguments because a lot of people kind of feel like Jim Benning has been vindicated now because they've won these eight games in a row. And that was just the coach that was the problem, which like, I think is pretty silly. Um, So, you know, I think they're going to come back down to earth, but I don't want to be that guy because this has been fun. Yeah. It's been way more fun than pretty much any other moment in the past eight years. So like, I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. And, you know, I don't know. They, I don't think anybody thought they were going to suck as much as they did to start the season. Like, I think that was a pretty huge surprise. Uh, I think people saw them as more of like a, like an 85 to 95 point team rather than like a 70 to 80 point team, which is how they were playing early on. So, Hmm. you know, I think, I think we're just seeing a bit of the, like the dead cat bounce a little bit. And then, you know, they're, they're probably going to even off here, but I would love to be wrong because, uh, you know, it's, it's been a long wait to, 
to see some good hockey. So, you know, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty satisfied with how things are going right now. Yeah. And I feel like the one thing that I guess you could, I've kind of taken away the past year or so, especially like, I guess, just paying attention a little bit to the Canucks this season and stuff. Is that like, I always underestimated how much coaching has like such an effect on the game as well. And just like how it can be played. And it's not always like you could basically like, there is no good player that can outperform a bad coach almost yeah. like like there's no like Patterson perfect like he's so damn good but like if you have a bad coach or like an unfavorable coach or unfavorable situation like there is no one that can really get out of that and like and win games like Ovechkin couldn't score his way out of a Dale Hunter system or whatever like yeah it's totally it's these like these little examples of like superstars or hall of famers that like you have a bad situation in you and like, and even the GM and it goes up to there, like you have a bad situation and you're stuck there and there's no real hope to get out. Well, you talk about Elias Pedersen, like that's the other frustrating thing right now is that the, the, all the uncles are starting to come out and uh, talk about, you know, trading him because he hasn't had a very good season, but he looks a lot better under Boudreaux than he did under green. I don't know. Like I have this theory sort of where like, so you know, before uh, Fred Shiro, basically, like in the yeah. 70s, like the job of a coach, like there was no such thing as a system. Right. The yeah. job of the coach was literally just to like motivate the players and, uh, you know, have like the proper message and, uh, you know, get guys going, basically. Mm-hmm. And I sort of have, this is a very like, you know, it's very nebulous. It's not very like, you know, like someone like, you know, Micah McCurdy or, or somebody would probably not, <laughs> not co-sign this theory, but like now we've reached a point where basically every coach coaches almost the same system, like with a couple of small variants. Um, like we haven't really seen a guy come in and coach like a radically different system basically since Patrick Waugh and mm. he, that only worked for him for like one season. Right. Yeah. Like Guy so, Boucher, like same yeah, kind of exactly. idea. At this point, it's kind of like everybody agrees that the, the same on the same foundation. And it's kind of just a matter of like, you know, how aggressive you are, how much your defensemen are going to be pinching that kind of like mm-hmm. relatively small things. So a part of me almost wonders if we're going, if we're circling back around to what coaches used to be before the seventies, where like, it really is now once again about like just messaging and being a motivator and like getting through to individual players and getting them going. And if that's the case, then I could see how making a switch from Travis green to Bruce Boudreaux could make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, Like like an example that kind of works with that is the Flyers this year. Like it's Elaine Vigneault and you you have your experience with Elaine Vigneault. Yeah. Like his message gets extremely old. Like I could see how like it's again, like his, and yeah, the same thing with the system too. Like even with the Flyers too, with Dave Haxall in Seattle right now, it's like he loves his defenseman to shoot the puck for some reason. And then 
his for, and for some reason his forwards don't recover it well with whether it's yeah. positioning or talent or whatever it's like all their shots charts are like yep very heavy point shots and like little to no like in front of the net um and you saw that in toronto too when he was an assistant coach like it's yeah. um there's like these guys have some systems but it's so minor things that it can affect a game but it's also very like yeah like exactly like messaging motivating players getting the right fit with yeah. uh with some just a mix of things like even and like i pay attention to the minnesota wild maybe more than people should but <laughs> like uh dean evison is one coach that as soon as he came in it was a very especially this year it's kind of turned up to like maximum volume but like it's very heavy like five-man attack kind of thing like it's you're very aggressive on all fronts no matter what you have to have good skaters on this team or you're going to get exposed um so it's like it's this intensity but also like how different is that from like the ultra polar opposite of like a Boucher, very conservative play style yeah. of hockey like how how much can that affect the game and i know people are gonna like that like you're saying with like micah and yeah, the, or whoever people. you know like stephen birch or like yeah like very numbers oriented people yeah or even like very like tactics heavy where they dive into like every little play or whatever like um like basically want to be video coaches and stuff like um yeah that like will be like no like this team plays different this team does this but it's so minute that it might just come down to talent that is feeling a different way and being able to be more comfortable in well and the thing that you the thing that you uh touched on there too is play putting the right players on the ice at the right time Mm -hmm. which is another thing that like i remember for example like uh like six or seven years ago in willie desjardins first or uh, second year behind the bench um in in vancouver after what was actually like quite a quite good first year uh, where he did some really interesting things like uh, four forwards at even strength when they were down a goal, uh, like things like that. Like he, mm. he uh, uh, emphasizing like empty net goals, like just getting players to shoot for the empty net uh, when they had the opportunity instead of trying to skate the puck out or whatever, because it's like, you know, if there's a minute left, who cares if there's an icing, <laughs> yeah. et cetera. Right. Yeah. And they, they scored like the most empty net goals that year. And so he had, he had a decent like first year, but then in his second and third year, it was just like, he, he, he would just roll one, two, three, four over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and he would do things like he could, like he wouldn't put the city out after a TV timeout. And he'd like play them with like Jason Magna and Michael <laughs> Chaput, like, like guys that were literally out of the league. Yeah. The next year instead of like you know like for i know this is this really shows you the dearth of talent that was there but like instead of like you know uh a gold or mm-hmm. like uh uh bear she or whatever yeah bear or whatever yeah exactly like and um and i remember getting in this argument with jd burke where he was basically like well look every coach like even the best coaches do like have their toys that they don't want to get rid of and like play like guys at weird times or like have players that they over rely on or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's true. But like, once again, like as we get closer and closer to just the singularity of hockey coaching systems, 
putting the right guys on the ice at the right time becomes like more and more important. It's like a way for you to separate yourself from the pack. Like, and uh, you, you know, you want to go back to Elaine Vigneault, like, I know he's hurt now, but you look at how great uh, Pavel Buchnevich has been for the oh, God, yeah. St. Louis Blues, right? And it's like that coaches, that's a thing that coaches screw up that's really, really bad is when they just like, they don't realize the talent that they have. Mm-hmm. And so they play like, you know, Tanner Glass or somebody instead <laughs> of like giving minutes to like a guy like that instead of to a guy who like, is a legitimate top six player. Right. And then I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at here with the Canucks is that like the, at least from like a fan standpoint, from like just a viewer perspective, the nice thing about Bruce Boudreaux is that like, he seems to be pretty oriented towards offense and Mm -hmm. oriented towards like playing, um, you know, playing guys that deserve it. And like, you know, trying to get the puck up the ice as quickly as possible. He says all the right things. So like at the very least, it's a lot more fun to watch a team that is trying to play to their strengths and play an offensive style than trying to cover for their weaknesses and like get back deep into the zone and like, you know, basically like play like they did against the uh, golden Knights in the bubble, which like, worked really well but was terrible to watch (laughs) yeah yeah it's like that fine balance of like am i enjoying this or like is it simply because they're winning or and like a very a a thing that you know is going to be short term like this isn't going to work in like the regular season or this isn't going to work for multiple years like yeah exactly it's the balance of like am i having fun um, I mean, I, it might have been because of it might have been just because of like me hating the jt miller trade but like that year that they were actually like pretty good and they made the playoffs. I fucking hated watching them. (laughs) I just, every game I was like, this is going to fall apart. And then they would just, you know, they'd be down three, two getting out shot, like Mm -hmm. two to one. And then they would just, somebody would score with like a minute left and then they'd, they'd win or they'd tie it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it's like, it's not fun to watch. It's a lot more fun to watch uh, a team that like gets the, the better end of the chances like last night in Tampa Bay, they outshot Tampa Bay. They lost, but they, they hung with one of the best teams in the league. Whereas like under Travis green, even though I don't, even though I think like green's a decent coach, uh, they would have been trying not to lose. They would have been getting outshot for sure. So, you know, some pleasant changes, if nothing else, the mood is a lot better out here than it was a few months ago. Yeah. And like, I feel like just the general, like I guess apathy for hockey coaching sometimes of just like not feeling like the most positive about it. And it's those little characteristics that make it like more fun. Like Dean Evans's favorite thing to do is like pull a goalie when it's like, I think the other day it down two goals, but he pulled the goalie on the power play when there's nine minutes left in the game. Like, it's wow. just like, it's just little things like that where it's like, okay, you're obviously thinking about this a lot. Like you're doing this, like, trying to do new things and not just go with like, yeah, whatever, whatever works kind of thing. And it's, I guess those things that help us like grab onto what a coach does and just like what exactly, like this is a, a very strong coaching decision. And I, and I feel like hockey sometimes has a, has like a, a difference between it because sometimes you don't see it as evident 
enough in like the normal like the rest of the game like 55 minutes <laughs> of, of the game that is like this is a coaching decision unlike i feel like other sports do this a lot better like you could kind of see decisions more like football and basketball mainly where you could be like yeah like that's that's not just a player improvising or a player going on his own will that's like a system that's a kind of the chess aspect of whatever sport yeah. and whether you find that interesting or not is a very like different thing but it is like hockey coaching is a different i guess a different beast yeah i think coaching should be banned like i think <laughs> yeah. they should just make the play i think the players should just have to go out there and figure it out for themselves i think it'd be a lot more fun yeah um, anyways I, I, isn't this the, supposed yeah. to be the show that gets people talking about something else <laughs> whatever uh, yeah i yeah, I guess we can move on. <laughs> a lot of time, a lot of time on Canucks hockey. I got to save some. I haven't recorded the Roxy Fever in like three weeks. I got to save some of my takes for. I know, I know I'm dying that. without Roxy Fever. Um, anyways, let's move on to the first first segment. Um, Jackson, I know you've already been the show, so you've already talked about what you're listening to lately. But what are you listening to in 2022? Wow, what a great question. You know, I haven't been. I've really been hitting. I'm on medical leave from work right now, so I've really been hitting TV hard okay uh, so like the last um uh thing that uh the last thing that i like listened to was like christmas music <laughs> because okay. uh you know because of the holidays or whatever but um i've been playing the bioshock games because they were on sale in the okay, uh, yeah. nintendo store and so i've been kind of like to the extent that i've been listening to uh, music which is like not a ton lately i've been listening to a lot of like old, like that sort of like old timey uh music that's been in those games because it's gotten me into that again like in the um in the third bioshock game it's really cool they uh it involves like interdimensional travel so like it mm -hmm. takes place in 1912 but the guy like brings back all this music from like the modern era and so you have like a ragtime version of like tainted love by soft cell Okay, and yeah. uh and like shit like that but uh the the one song that uh i've been playing over and over again is this old uh jazz song by Artie shaw called uh nightmare okay yeah, uh, yeah. it's got like a very like james bond feel to it it's like maybe my favorite instrumental song ever uh and then other than that um i watched the uh the get back docuseries mm -hmm. on disney plus about uh let it be so i've been rediscovering the beatles uh recently who which was like my favorite band when i was a little kid uh so i've been listening to uh the let it be album quite a lot and then some of uh like john and paul's solo stuff as well uh kind of getting into that for the first time uh the uh john lennon plastic ono band album is mm -hmm. really good and it's kind of like uh i don't want to say it's forgotten because it's like it's a very uh it's a it's a very like critically well regarded but it's sort of like takes a back seat to imagine or like band on the run in terms of like beatles solo output but i think it might be actually like the best the best album out of all their solo output so i've kind of just been retreading old ground uh which may be a theme as we uh like discuss this further because like yeah i i don't know i think just since the start of the pandemic it seemed like 
artists are kind of like hiding out and waiting and there hasn't been as much new music. 2021 was a lot better than 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like, yeah, I've just been really struggling to find good new stuff. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you follow me on Twitter and you have a sense of what my taste is, hit me up in the DMs. Tell me what to listen to. I have no idea anymore. I've become old and out of touch. (laughs) That's a familiar feeling anyways. Um, to me anyways but um yeah like have you was there a reason why you kind of i guess fell out with the beatles from like a childhood or is it just like growing your taste into a different way i think it stopped being cool that makes honestly like when i was a kid um and and like a teenager and stuff like the beatles were i don't want to say they were like a cool band to like but they were very much like everyone had this sense of like well who doesn't like the beatles everybody likes the Mm -hmm. Beatles. Um, And then I think as like millennials and zoomers got older and we kind of like, we've gotten sort of sick and tired of like the, the boomer hold over the culture, like just the, the like cultural hegemony of people in their fifties and sixties. Like just sort of like, we all have to accept that that's the best stuff and the best anything ever was i think there was like sort of this backlash against the beatles for a while um and like i never really cared about that necessarily but it does put a damper on listening to something when like you can't you know i have a lot of musician friends and stuff and like it's sort of a bummer when you have a, a set of friends that you like to talk to about music and there's a band you like and just none of them like it it just because there's no one to talk to about it right Mm -hmm. but now with this documentary coming out and people sort of becoming more interested in them and i think also like people seeing them goofing off and like having a good time which just really flies in the face of like what the story around that album was right uh it's sort of like people are talking about them again people are seeing them in a new light um I think Paul is finally getting the recognition that he's deserves as being like the band's creative center. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, they're, they're in the, they're in the news again. They're in the, uh, there's a buzz on the Twitter sphere yeah. about them. So, you know, and, and uh, they're, they're a very like, not all their stuff, but like a lot of their stuff is they can be like a very childish band. Mm. So it's interesting to, listen to them again as an adult you pick out different stuff you have totally different like stuff that you like uh versus versus when you're a kid where you're going to be drawn to like yellow submarine or whatever <laughs> yeah. um but the cool thing about uh about the beatles that also applies to the band we're about to talk about is uh multiple songwriters mm-hmm. which is always like a really interesting dynamic that i think we've like gotten away from now which is too bad as like we have more and more people just like doing like auteur albums and like making music alone in their bedroom or whatever. Mm. Uh, It's really cool to listen to people with different ideas and different uh, styles or whatever, like bounce off of each other and kind of in the case of uh, both the Beatles and the Minutemen who we're about to talk about, like writing songs both together and completely on your own and uh kind of like watching that or listening i guess i should say to that like push pull between big personalities yeah yeah that is that is an interesting kind of i guess 
product of the way a lot of people are making music now with like just a very solo effort. Um, the one thing that came to mind, honestly, when you said that, so I have a, this one friend um, goes by gold chain. That's his actual Word. last name. Um, he's a producer in Toronto and he produces for other big name, like Canadian artists and stuff. Um, a mutual friend, Silo Nasra has been on CBC a bunch and stuff and like R&B and his, like I've, I've seen him work and stuff and it's a very collaborative process, but it's not like, it's a different dynamic. I feel like than obviously um, like a band or like multiple songwriters in a band, like we'll talk about with Minutemen and the Beatles, but like it's a producer, like, kind of guiding the voice of the artist where that has more obviously power in the end product but also like it's still a collaborative process like they still discuss everything through and it's still kind of more of of that and maybe you miss that with some artists that it can do both um but i feel like that's like that was the first thing that came to mind of just like that's the one thing that is kind of more new and i guess in the 21st century of like this era of music that is definitely differently it's different collaboratively but it's also still like still a push-pull kind of relationship yeah i i definitely know what you mean but what the thing that like i center in on when you say that is the the idea of the producer now being like the person who formulates everything mm -hmm. like being kind of the the puppet master or whatever and like now like the new hotness i think the, the people who like get uh the most buzz uh are people who like self-produce yeah and like the 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 recording studio becomes like an instrument the sort of unspoken like you know i i mean not that there's many fucking power trios left but like the recording studio is now is now the the unspoken fourth instrument in the power trio or whatever right um which which i honestly like kind of get does get its start with george martin and the beatles uh but if you want to talk about a band that is absolutely not that at all the minutemen uh are maybe like the least produced band <laughs> of uh of the past like 40 years or whatever yeah, let, let, let's just get into it. Let's we spend enough time totally. about. Um, yeah. there there's already enough time of pre-ramble, but uh it's already been said. It's already the band's already been said, but um Jackson, could you tell the audience um what album we chose to talk about? Uh that would be 1984's Double Nickels on the Dime, uh by yes, the aforementioned Minutemen. Uh I wanted to ask you something. Uh I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyways. Uh, has anyone suggested an album or brought an album to this show with this many tracks on it? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll just yeah. say no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a guess here that this probably clears the nearest album by a good, like 20 songs. Uh, uh yeah, maybe not quite, maybe yeah. not quite. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but I think. Maybe the longest is like 20. So yeah, so that yeah. takes the cake easily. So the version of this album that is on streaming and that is the most commonly, I think, listened to version 
uh, has 43 tracks, mm -hmm. uh, which is the 1989 CD release, which has the covers on it, but not like a couple of like there's a couple of extra ones missing from the full version, which has, I think, uh, 43, 44, maybe um, there's there's a few different versions of this album that uh, that are kicking around out there. But uh, one of the things the 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 saving grace is you might be listening to this thinking, holy shit, 43 songs. That sounds extremely daunting, which it is. Um, but the saving grace is that out of those 43 songs, only 10 are longer than two minutes. Mm -hmm. So the final length of the album is an hour and 15 minutes, which I think is about the same length as like the wall. Yeah. Right. Uh, or like, you know, uh, on similar, like, like the white album or whatever, like similar, uh, double albums that have been put out in the past. So if you're sitting there and you've never listened to the Minutemen before, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't listen to a 43 song album. It's not as long or as daunting as it sounds. Yeah, honestly. So I've been exposed to some Minutemen, but I haven't listened to this on, in full. So when you mm -hmm. mentioned it a while back about coming back on the show and talking about it, I yeah, I put it on and kind of got exposed to it. What do you say? Um, and yeah, it's 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 definitely a ride. I would say that's my first like yes, input. Yeah. It's is the definition of a very uh takes you places kind of album. Yes. Um yeah, like I like the first kind of instinct was like, oh, this is kind of like a, a like a funk album. And it's like yeah. it's very like that instrumentation is like, oh, it's very bass heavy. That's so like odd. And like the guitar is like it's mixed in a way where the guitar is kind of like at the top. So it's like, oh, that's instantly, oh, funk album. Like it's it's this like three, yeah. these three levels and then vocals kind of just scattered throughout. And um, the interesting thing yeah. about that too, is that like there, there is a lot of funk in like new wave and post-punk yeah. that would have been happening around this time. Like the gang of four and like, um, uh, come on fucking talking heads. I don't know why mm. it took me so long to find that name. Um, like they're very funky bands, mm -hmm. but in a totally different way. They're like funky with like, but also like white, like extremely white, like with all the 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 blackness of the genre like taken out. Whereas men are very white too in a different way, but there's still like a lot of like roots and a lot of like grit and soul mm. in what they do as well. Um, and yeah, like I I I think. Um, I think it's totally fair to categorize like a lot of what's on here as sort of like freak funk. Um, yeah. yeah. So you, you had never listened to this album in full no. before. No. Okay. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad I got, I'm <laughs> glad you, I'm the reason that you got to listen to it then. What did you, what did you think of it? Like, right, cause turning, it's a very, this around. <laughs> yeah, I am. I know. I'm sorry. But I just, I, I'm, I'm no, very curious. It's like it's, it's a very, because the Minutemen are sort of like just before they're in that that tier of bands kind of just before like the fall and mm. uh and like Captain Beefheart of being like a little bit daunting to get into and a little bit of like a homework band but not so inaccessible that you have to listen over and over and over again to get it yes that makes that, sense that, that makes perfect yeah. sense like it's it's a very like it's not like homework band is a perfect like kind of I guess term for other bands like that. Um, but it's like it's still 
there's characteristics of those bands um yeah in in Minutemen and like I feel like they're again like you get a lot of different sounds from it um again it takes you places and stuff and there's different like just throwing in live renditions of um yeah there's one live track on here yeah um which is i mean one officially live track the cool thing i talk about the minutemen being in a band that's like super underproduced uh they did this with i think pretty much all of their records except for project mersh but with this one it's the most impressive uh they would play all of these songs live in the studio in the order they wanted them to be on on the record and uh record on used tape to save money that's crazy. so like this was all recorded in like and oh and they would rec- always record after midnight too to save on money because they had this whole ethos called jamming econo which is basically a very fancy way of saying being super fucking cheap um <laughs> and so like yeah I, I think the song you're referring to is the the credence cover yeah. Um, Don't look now, which is the one song on the album that like wasn't recorded in studio. It was just like recorded at a club or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's 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 one of like the more interesting albums I've listened to recently. I would say um, again, like in just like reading more about the process of recording. So like each, I know we'll probably you wanted to probably talk on this like late later, but how like so obviously it's a double album so when this was released in 84 it would be obviously vinyl and it was so each so there's four sides four members of the band they would each take a side and basically get to they like drafted the songs that they wrote yeah so Um, here's it here's here's how here's how it went down right so the minutemen have like basically two songwriters um but the the drummer uh george hurley he also uh, wrote like a little bit right and um if you look at so there's 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 actually three members of the band george hurley mike watt and uh d boone and so they have they have the the sides organized as side d oh, right. yeah which is like mostly it it wasn't completely like i think the way they did it there is a there is a through line here where like each side is mostly songs by the person who like side D is mostly D Boone songs side. Mike is mostly Mike Watt songs side George. He didn't write that much, but like most of the songs that he wrote are on that side. And then the fourth side is side chaff, which is just them saying, yeah, this, these are the last leftover songs, (laughs) Um, which, and the funny thing about that is that you'd think that that would result in like, a real like kind of crappy send off like the last 10 songs wouldn't be that good but uh like two or three of my favorite songs on this album are on side chaff uh jesus and tequila is really great and then i love absolutely love their cover of dr Wu by steely dan (laughs) which um which is so funny because it's got like uh i think it's one of the ones one of the few ones that mike watt sings and it's just him like saying the words of the song while D Boone sings it kind of like off mic in the background. So it's just like, you know, I, I, I don't want to like do an impression or whatever for that long. Cause it's like, it won't be very good, but it's just, uh, you know, Mike Watt being like, are you with me, Dr. Wu? 
are you really just a shadow of the man that I once knew? <laughs> and meanwhile, like, you know, D is like singing in the background or whatever. Um, very punk, like very anti-punk, but punk move, by the way, to cover a Steely Dan song <laughs> yeah. on an SST album, which I think really like gets to the heart of kind of who they were as a band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's even, I know we're like jumping all over the place, but also like, just reading so, so did they there you go it's <laughs> yeah it's, it's symbolism um like so even in the imagery of the album so the cover is just like i believe it's mike watt right yeah, at the on the cover right. yeah um and he's just smiling in the rearview mirror of yeah. um of a car and then it's also it's in relation to sammy hagar's let me just read this yeah they're making fun of can't drive 55 yeah by sammy hagar which is like <clears throat> you know a very that's a very like punk target for mm-hmm. for uh ridicule and the thing i love about that is that yeah so they they worked really hard on this album cover they had to set up the camera like just right to get mike smiling in the mirror and then they had to wait for him to get like exactly to 55 on the speedometer so that they could get that in the shot and i do love that because it's it's so minutemen it's like oh yeah sammy hagar can't drive 55 we we not just not just having uh a a, like an album cover where they're driving 55 on the dot but to have that clever like we drive double nickels on the dime is so like it it will we, we we might get into this a little bit later but like as a band that's sort of like has their own like world and lore and language that's like fucking getting into like the Silmarillion, but for a band, um, yeah, Double Nickels on the Dime is such a great album uh, name, especially when you like finally understand what the fuck they're getting at and talking about. Yeah, like it's this whole. Um, let me just see. Like it's just so the whole thing with like making fun of that can't drive fifty five. It was like. I feel like just from reading it briefly it was like, uh, like, why are you protesting against this? Like, just a like a traffic law, like you're not really like <laughs> that defiant exactly. in any way. <laughs> like, it's very like, like yeah, it's very like because I feel like as a band, the Minutemen are very anti. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of the right. I want to say like anti badass, but that's not even the right way of looking at it. It's like like outlaw, they're very, like a very like a mm, not yeah, like they're but like, they're very anti-establishment, but they're they're very against like trying to appear anti-establishment as like an affectation. Yeah, getting mad like, at like useless things. Like, yeah, and I feel like I can't drive fifty five is such a perfect like um example of just like being uh you know against something for the sake of it or like being Mm. defiant or rebellious against something that like doesn't really matter like because these guys are writing songs about like you know iran contra or whatever and and like you know uh war in south america or whatever Mm. like american imperialism or whatever and it's like that's that is the stuff that you should be rebelling against not like (laughs) The speed limit being too low for you because <laughs> you want to yeah. drive fast. Yeah. 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 I think here's a, so here's a quote from Watt. Um, the big rebellion thing 
was writing your own fucking songs and trying to come up with your own story, your own picture, your own book, whatever. So he can't drive 55 because that was the natural speed limit. Okay, we'll drive 55, but we'll make crazy music. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) That's super. That's very Mike Watt, who actually I I I didn't really know it at the time because I only really got into this album kind of at the start of the pandemic. But uh, I got to see Mike Watt when my band played at Sled Island in I think 2017 might have been 2018 i can't remember we we played that festival like five years in a row with like three different incarnations of the band so it it all kind of bleeds together um but i get to see him headline like one night at the legion in calgary um and they were they were just he was fucking amazing but uh he was before the show he was just in the audience with his bass case like you could pick him out because he's the one guy carrying his bass around. Right. And he's just like in the audience, like talking to my buddy, like talking to one of the guys in the band, like watching the opening band because like that's what he's about. He's about like cool fucking music of any any sort, right? This was like, I think a, a Japanese girl band that opened right. for them. And he's just like, yeah, like I want, I want fucking crazy music like i i read uh there's a great book called our band could be your life mm-hmm. uh by michael azarad which is about uh it has a section about the Minutemen, it has a section about black flag it's like all the sort of big uh bands in the transition from hardcore to alternative rock um and uh there's a section in the book where d and mike talk about um like being music punk versus being fashion punk. And they were sort mm. of saying like fashion punk is like embracing the lifestyle and I mean the fashion obviously, and like the attitude and, and all of that, and like music punk is like embracing a fuck you attitude towards like rules about composition and like what a song is supposed to sound like. And like, you know, being like, you know, you didn't want, you you don't want to listen to the same fucking thing over and over again. Like you want a band that fucking does like a country cowpunk song one second and then does like funk the next and then does like post hardcore on the next song. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that is, that is punk way more than, you know, wearing like a leather vest and like mm. having a mohawk or yeah. whatever. Or even just playing like a very formulaic, fast, like here's yeah. your three characteristics of a punk song, like go and then kind of thing. Like and it just feels, cool... sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, I, yeah. And that's the, that's the, the cool thing about the Minutemen is they still have that. And like, right, yeah. like all of their songs are still generally like very short and very fast, especially their early stuff. Like mm. their first uh, EP, <clears throat> which is called, I think, Paranoid Time. Um, the song, there's like, I don't think there's a single song that's over a minute and every song is like 200 BPM. And, but it's still like the musicianship is out of this world and there's like jazz drumming Mm -hmm. and like, you know, the guitars all over the place and the bass is all over the place. And it's like, you know, it's not surprising to me that they found their home in punk because like, what else would you call them? Yeah. But Yeah. yeah, it's, it's very like musically, like the influences are totally all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels very um, like just talking about this, like John Zorn. I don't know if you've 
been exposed to him. No, at, no, at never, never heard of him. So he's originated in jazz, all the uh, saxophonist, but then he would basically create these improvisational games almost. His most famous one's called Cobra. Um, and it's like, it's a whole set of, like there's a set of rules, but it's all improvisational rules, like play something like right. this um, or whatever you're feeling, or there's like different modes and different ways that you could play, whatever. Um, and he is like, obviously roots and jazz and stuff, but he is very like a punk kid. Like he would talk about, I think he's literally talked about Husker Du and stuff and growing up in that Hell yeah. um, era and stuff. And um, he would play, oh, let me look it up quickly. Um, but like, he would, there's a video on YouTube. I think it's from Japan. Oh, yeah. He's playing in a hardcore band. But playing... On the subject of Husker Du, by the way, just to interject mm-hmm. while you look that up, this album was uh, a, like, response to Zen Arcade, which is, okay, was yeah. Husker Du's big, uh, um, big double album. And then they, apparently, the Minutemen, who had this sort of, like, friendly rivalry with uh husker do they really liked them but they they were also like wanted to best them as mm-hmm. like because husker do always had the that reputation of being like the most sophisticated uh sophisticated of musically sophisticated anyways of the uh sst bands so they put out a double album with like twice as many songs and then in the liner notes were like hey fucking beat that huskers <laughs> um, which i think is really funny well, but anyways it. as you were saying about um zorn. yeah so john zorn there's one album called naked city um that it's basically here's the just quick wikipedia here's the genre that it's under avant-garde jazz no wave grindcore avant-garde metal <laughs> yes um, yes and so the one video i found so it's john zorn's naked city it's actually from the marquee club in new york city it's from 92 okay um it's basically i'll send it to you after the show but um, yeah please do yes thank you it's it's an hour uh basically set um that is it's like yeah like there's hardcore vocals but it's also stylized in the same way as jazz like um instrumentation like bill frizzell who's like known as like a very good, oh yeah yeah bill, bill frizzell he's on this record um wayne horvitz on keyboards who also did um I'm trying to remember he's like a jazz fusion band i think um and like yeah and then uh bass and drums and that's like the composition other than zorn and then a vocalist as well i forget the vocalist's name as well but um it's it's just um actually let me quickly here yam yamatsuka i he's from the band i e e y e um okay yeah and it's like experimental rock yeah he's done stuff with battles Oh um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah Sonic. Yeah. I know about yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> yeah. So it's like that style, but it's also very like, yeah, there's a root in jazz and stuff and looking at the track list again, very Minutemen esque uh, 26 tracks, but 55, oh, wow, yeah. minutes, but 55 minutes long. Um, See, I feel like the, I feel like the key to jazz, the, the key to like making good experimental music is to get as close to jazz as possible without actually just becoming jazz yeah. at which point you've gone too far <laughs> well, there, but there's, like yeah there's a Burnett coleman who's like a famous alto sax player who who started the not kind of started he has uh credit to starting the free jazz movement um oh, yeah. and he there's a cover of his song lonely woman on this record but lonely woman i know is like 
can be very long, like sure. but it's only two and a half minutes. Like, oh yeah, that's like, great. <laughs> that's the way to do it. And that, I was gonna say about this record too is like the thing that I love about this this record is that, like in a lot of ways, you know, like my dad likes this album, right? right. And I can guarantee you, like my dad is like a blues guy, and mm. he uh, only this is the only SST album he would ever like because there's like all of these elements in it of like stuff that's, I feel like recognizable to like an older generation of rock and roll fan. Like, like a lot of guys who wouldn't be into punk could listen to this and recognize like beef hard and like mm-hmm. um, credence and steely Dan and um you know like other bands like that like sort of classic rock bands or whatever because they there's a lot of like impressive guitar and bass work a lot of like the album itself is not super jazzy but like there's a lot of like jazz chords Mm. and like noodling in that sense and uh then there's also like a few kind of like laid back uh jams like um uh, like history lesson part two which is one Mm. of my favorite songs on this album um but the good thing, the thing that makes it work is the longest song on the album is two minutes and 53 seconds long. Yeah. Whereas like if this album was made in like 1970, every song would have been like, well, first of all, like there would have been half as many songs and they would have all just like been jammed together and they would have all been like 15 minutes long. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's like kind of the secret, I think, to like making good prog is that like, you, you should only be allowed to like repeat each idea once max and your song should only be like a minute and a half long. <laughs> yeah. Like it's the like anti-fish. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole notion of like just jam out stuff and like it's, it's just these like annoying dudes that would want to like just have the same motif play like repeatedly for like an hour. Yeah, just, like, and like noodle noodle a guitar solo for five yeah. minutes or whatever. Whereas like there are guitar solos <clears throat> on this album, but uh, usually they come in the place of something else. Like if there's going to be a guitar solo, then there's no chorus or like yeah. there's no verse or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, they're really unique in that sense. Like I really have not heard, I think the band that most reminds me of them is probably parquet courts. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like, it's particularly like some, some of the stuff on uh, wide awake in particular, like really reminds mm-hmm. me of the Minutemen. but like, once again, like that's a band, like I love instant disassembly, but that song is like seven and a half fucking minutes long. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I just feel like it takes so much confidence to just like, have a song that doesn't repeat itself or like it's really good or it's really catchy even because like there are some pretty catchy songs on this album it's not like it's not all like really hard uh to get into or like really you know jazzy or like experimental or whatever like there are a lot of jams on this album but like you know you take like a song like vietnam or whatever minute and 27 seconds long and you get the uh you get the chorus twice and you know, I don't think the words like repeat. Mm -hmm. So it's very like, 
it's 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 a big dick move for sure yeah like all, all of these songs yeah and like it even ties to i guess art or oh, i hate this word content but like it is content <laughs> and like yeah. and just stuff in general that you create is like this obsession about and i've talked i just last episode talked with shana goldman about it about like more writing about this but like it's this obsession with like showing that you are thoughtful or you've worked so hard on it because of the length or because of the the amount of effort you've put into it other than like this is a really creative like avenue this is an idea here take my idea absorb it and then that's my idea like it's very like i would rather read or listen to or just enjoy things that are very like potent and short and just like yep that is the thing and i will think about it because those things i usually think about longer than it took me to read it to read it oh this terrible grammar yes Uh, (laughs) yeah i know you mean but like it's and just like general stuff like that where like you you could feel it it is concise but it's also more powerful that way than like long drawn out i zoned out i don't even know what i'm listening to anymore what okay and i never listen to it again because it's too long and it's too yeah, like, like it's the, too even the length of the average pop song feels like it's like creeping up. Yeah. Like in the in the 50s and 60s, a pop song was two minutes long. Mm-hmm. And now it's like like I remember uh like my fiance and I are gearing up to um to get married here in like the next month. And we have no idea what it's gonna look like because <laughs> of all the COVID stuff, but like yeah. we're um we wanted to uh, do a first dance to uh, this Taylor Swift song, which like, which is very funny um, because like, I'm not really a big Taylor Swift guy, but th- this is like what, one of her songs that is very, very good that I really, really like. Um, but like, we got to fade it out because it's too long. It's li- it is too. And, and like, even from like my own standpoint as like a person who actually like does, I, I have an affinity for pop music for sure. Mm-hmm. Um like I listen to a lot of stuff that's like good, but it's just like, you know, it has that, that thing that pop songs do where they just like repeat the chorus with like the, you know, it's like you do the, the chorus and then you have that like sort of underneath. And then you have the singer like vamping over top of that while mm. the chorus goes on in the background. And you do that for like 45 seconds. And it's like, this was totally unnecessary. You could have just faded that out, yeah. you know? And it's, it, it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like the fucking Eminem uh, thing where you just, the last minute is just the beat with no one like singing or <laughs> yeah. rapping or whatever. And it's like, why? Yeah. This is too long. I know. And even like, even to revert back to Taylor Swift and like, I feel like, so <laughs> this is going to get like, uh oh dirty or in the mud or whatever but like the her re-release of red sure sure. and all that stuff and like um and her (laughs) i'm gonna no i'm gonna go against what we're talking about and i feel like the 10 minute version of all too well like it fit it didn't i feel like okay it could have it could have been a lot shorter and the original version is fine but it's catchy enough that i feel like you it's just like playing this song three times in a row but it's still catchy enough that you don't really notice it sure okay yeah but also at the same time like there was so much emphasis on like this is 10 minutes long like oh it works so hard she put so much effort into this like 
Yeah. Um, and by the same token, it's like people being like, you know, oh, well, like, I just love this song so much. And now I get a 10 minute version of it. And it's like, <laughs> I fucking love like um, this ain't no picnic is one of my favorite songs ever. I don't want a 10 minute version of it. That would make it less good. Yeah. What makes it good is that it's like a minute and a half long. Yeah. I mean, it's not the only thing that makes it good, but like, you know, there's something to be said about brevity. It's the same thing. We're living in the age of everything is fucking too long. Movies are too long. TV mm -hmm. shows go on for too long. Pop songs are too long. Albums are albums are, are too long. And the funny thing about the Minutemen is they 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 would be totally prepared for the streaming era because of how long, like not long, but how many different tracks they're on there are on their albums they would get the uh they would get that extra skrilla from all the extra plays um <laughs> so that's one way that they were ahead of their time yeah I, yeah i think it's it's a different kind of feeling getting these little short snippets of like ideas like the even the van halen cover that's 40 seconds long yeah talk about yeah, that, like that's not so... on my on my version of it but yeah that's a good that's a good like example there are there are lots of i mean like even even their uh their credence cover and their dr Wu cover are also like really short like mm -hmm. yeah like dr Wu is 144 yeah. <laughs> and uh and uh and don't look now is 146 so like mm -hmm. yeah it's great it's, it improves on those songs in my opinion by keeping them brief and then it also like it really adds to it when you get the like one or two conventional songs per side, mm -hmm. like they stand out so, so well because of that. Like, um, I feel like we, we can't make our way out of this podcast without talking about Corona. Right. Um, yeah. Which I am curious, what was the experience for you hearing that? So, um, <laughs> so Corona, the first, Oh, I'm trying to remember where I first heard it. Um, I mean, it, I assume oh, it was TV's yeah. Jackass, right? Yeah. So I heard it. I was like, where the hell do I know this from? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, was it? Because I remember it's kind of, I guess, the same vibe. And I literally had a thing playing in my head, which ended up being obviously the intro of Jackass yes. and like people yes. getting hit in the balls and stuff. Exactly. But, um it was playing in my head and I, I recently rewatched about like six months ago, the vice series of um, King of the road, the thrasher thing, the skateboarding right. thing. Yeah. And they, it's a very similar vibe sure. of like skateboarders just hitting each other in the nuts. Um, <laughs> so like, but this time it's a road trip. And then it's basically like, I thought it was that, but then I was like, Oh no, it's Jack hacks. Like that's yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, because I wasn't sure if you were if you like knew that that was a Minutemen song or that no, you knew I, that the Jackass theme was on this album. But yeah, I mean, I for a long time because I I didn't get super deep into the Minutemen until recently, but for a long time I uh, I always assumed their biggest song was the Saint No Picnic because it's like the first one that comes up when you YouTube them. Right. Um, not knowing and not realizing until I listened to this full album that they did the jackass theme, which really like uh, 
like, okay, a couple different observations on that. First of all, really made me rethink Jackass as a show <laughs> yeah. because I was like, it's really wild that like their theme song, even though they only use the instrumental break, which is very like, has this very like Benny Hill, mm-hmm. like kind of like aspect to it. I can see why, like, it's the perfect soundtrack to like, you know, watching a guy like run around or like fall off a house or like whatever fucking jackass shit they're doing. Um, but it's like a song about like poverty in South America and how it's like caused by America. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes me like think like, oh, I wonder what, like, I wonder how this happened. That like, who is like one of the guys, like a Minutemen fan or like, yeah. was the, did they just like go looking for like the perfect song or whatever? But um, it's honestly, it, it's one of my favorite songs. Like it's a beautiful song. And a yeah. lot most people like haven't heard the verses which are wonderful. And it's one of those great uh, songs that does one of my favorite things, which is where you have um, verses and then your chorus is a riff, like an instrumental break. Mm-hmm. I love when songs do that. It's really, really hard to pull off. But when you do, it's like fantastic. Like another song that does that where, uh, where like the guitar riff is like, maybe not necessarily in place of the chorus, but is like, the emotional center of the song or like the power of the song is that song uh wasting time by uh blink 182 do you know that song oh yeah yeah, yeah. i love like i love when bands do that where they have this really catchy guitar riff and then make that the chorus and just like you know have the have the confidence to just like not have any lyrics or any singing or whatever mm-hmm. um and i mean yeah it's obvious like it's obviously like an iconic guitar riff and there's actually like a lot of really amazing guitar work on this album with D Boone, like with the treble turned all the way up <laughs> and like yeah. no distortion, which for anyone who's ever played guitar, that's very, a very unforgiving yeah. way it to play. Like you have to be it's, really, yeah. really precise. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and like, yeah, like I feel like there's like the guitar work on this album stacks up against any fucking like Jimmy page riff or whatever um and i feel like you know i i wish uh i had gotten into this band earlier because like i totally could have seen myself like trying to learn like west germany alongside uh you know heartbreaker or whatever when i first learned how to play guitar (laughs) yeah yeah it's definitely like really impressive musically like even as like a basis i'm just drawn to the bass obviously but it's oh yeah very, like, i mean mike watt is like yeah. fucking the bass player in, yeah. in alternative rock pretty yeah much. and just immediately was like oh this is very like bass heavy and like and i generally get drawn to bass heavy music anyways like even in like other hardcore bands i listen to if it's more prominent or like groovy or just like stuff like that but yeah like it's just very like the work is evident of like their musicianship and i feel like it's they it's evident throughout the whole album that it's very like on purpose and they take care of like these songs so well and nothing's like without a thought really yeah absolutely and it's they're definitely like out of all the out of all their sort of contemporaries they're in my opinion like definitely the most musically and probably lyrically sophisticated Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, you get through like we've gotten through like an hour here without even talking about like the lyrics on this album are fucking yeah. out, out of their mind. Like uh, the 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 ground that they cover lyrically is as a, as 
disparate and impressive as the musical ground because like you know they have all these different songs about like american foreign policy but then they have like a song about just like uh ruining their hotel room (laughs) or whatever (laughs) like that's just literally like the lyrics are just like a letter they got from their landlord or something yeah i was gonna bring that up yeah um, (laughs) like oh what's it take 5d yeah yeah Yeah. and there's like uh, shit from an old notebook is like that too like Mm -hmm. i think that they're because they they had this whole thing like i talked about how um they had their own like little language like jamming econo i mentioned but then they also had like mersh which was short for commercial um flyers uh were what they called albums because the idea was that the albums were advertisements for the shows right um which another really cool thing just to it's like sidebar or whatever uh through the entirety of this band's run all they all had day jobs <laughs> and so they would like take like three weeks off and tour and then come back to their day job or whatever mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, anyways, uh, they, uh, yeah. So Mersh was one. And then there what was, that? there was another really good one. Um, ah, it's, I've, it's escaped me now, um, which I feel terrible about, uh, what were we just talking about? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, the, I, the projects was it the. I'm just trying to think of of like what they they had a lot of good like terminology and I'm just I'm blanking on one of the really good ones um but anyways yeah like as as Mm -hmm. far as oh spiels that's what it was yeah their their uh their word for like lyrics was spiels because for the most part like they didn't sit down and like go like okay this is the verse and this is the chorus a lot of the time they would just write like their songs would almost all like just function as instrumentals. And then Mike Watt or D Boone would just like literally just write words. And one of them would like figure out how to like make that fit over the song, which yeah. is like really weird and makes it like can make some of the songs a little bit mm-hmm. harder to get into, but it's very, very cool. And it really like adds this layer of like, um, you know, conceptual sophistication that like, I don't think any other band from the era really had like, yeah, sure. You have like the Ramones writing like Bonzo goes to Bitburg or whatever, or like, um, you know, like the clash did some political stuff, but like Mm -hmm. the, the, the political analysis on this record is like unbelievable. And D Boone was like, a really interesting guy uh he got hassled at the airport once for dressing up like fidel castro <laughs> which is just fucking like i don't know why you would do that like i don't know what he thought was gonna happen yeah but that's so funny that he did that like oh my yeah God. it's so it's yeah it's just the creativity too like in the even with their lyrical content so like there's a, a reference to kind of the stream of consciousness like literary kind of style of writing that was obviously yeah popular with like jack kerouac and like the the late 50s kind of beatnik in like the i guess the same area like california um that they grew up in and stuff and i feel like that maybe it's that connection too of i guess just like this feeling of not taking things too like seriously or not absolutely just like just thinking outside of like whatever box they want to think about of like this can be a lyric this can be whatever we want it to be 
Um, and like having those terminology kind of fits with their whole, I guess, approach with like making music. Well, and they're, they're another cool thing too, is they're uh, like incredibly working class band too, right, like yeah. both in how they, how they operated and in their subject matter, like uh, they were in their first band was like the three of them. I believe the three of them, or it might've been D Boone and Mike Watt and a different drummer um, and like a lead singer called the reactionaries they put out like mm-hmm. one record in 1980 and then they broke they broke up because d Boone and mike watt said having uh the traditional like front man in a band was bourgeois so they didn't <laughs> want to do it um and like you know uh they they purposely held early shows so that mm-hmm. people could go to work the next day um so they did not be out like super late um and then they they also have like I mentioned the Saint No Picnic earlier, but like one of the things that got me into them was they that song is like one of the best songs about work mm-hmm. and how work sucks. And the the inspiration for it too was like of course D Boone like being the kind of guy that he was. Uh, he worked at an auto body shop I think, and um, he would put on music and he would put on like jazz or uh, or like funk or blues mm-hmm. or whatever. And his boss came in one day and he was like, "Turn off that N word shit." And just like having that feeling of like, I can't quit this job because Mm -hmm. like I need it to survive and to do the, the, you know, to like be in a band so that I can do the thing that I actually want to do. And like, this is the fucking asshole that Mm -hmm. I have to work for and the shit that I have to put up with, you know, it's very like, very relatable, even on, on an album with a lot of like really heady stuff. Mm -hmm. There's still like a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that's super relatable too, like that. Yeah, definitely. And like, it's just, I guess the approach and that kind of things, like, I think I remember first hearing about stuff bands did like, like that would be like Fugazi. And I guess that's like a related, a related band to Minutemen. Another Um, band that's featured in uh, our bank of your life as well. Okay. Along with minor threat. It's the one guy. Ian Ian McKay is the one guy who gets to be in the book twice. Yeah. Yeah, lucky him. Um, but yeah, like they would <laughs> they would have oh, what was their thing? They would have their only merch is like this is not a Fugazi t-shirt, and they'd sell yeah. it for five bucks or whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, just like that approach to like and making the live records like or live performances more important than anything else, like any like those things like flyers, kind of that mentality of stuff. It's just like it's just so I guess fresh and you're not seeing it even a lot these days with everything that's going on like yeah um, absolutely that's such a blanket statement but like it's uh yeah like you're not you're just not seeing that approach to music or art or anything like that really what's well, criminal that the Minutemen never put out an official live album like that would right. have been so cool i i if i could go back in time and see one band live like i, I oh, might God. pick this one just because like i can't even fucking imagine what a show of theirs would be like they'd probably play like 50 songs <laughs> yeah. at a show. Like I, I can't even imagine like yeah. um, how much ground they would cover. And I mean, I got like a taste of it mm-hmm. seeing Mike Watt, which was super cool because it's really, it's really cool to see a guy like that do like his greatest hits mm-hmm. <laughs> because it like, you know, if you like bass, like just, Google Mike Watt and you will find like literally, I don't think anybody has done as many different projects as him. No, it's crazy. Like he's done, he's done his solo stuff. He's done Firehouse, Minutemen. 
And then like uh, big walnuts yonder, I think is one of the bands. <laughs> um, and then like all these like different one-offs. And then he played bass on uh, the reunion Stooges record. Oh, wow. Uh, and so like when, when I saw him live, like he, they played a Stooges song in addition to like a bunch of other stuff that they did or whatever. And like, yeah, I mean, I can't D Boone, most underrated member of the, uh, 27 club. Yeah. Yeah. And his, yeah, was, his yeah. death is so tragic too. Like, uh, Mike like still hasn't gotten over it. He dedicates all his albums to, to D Boone. Um, like yeah. I know obviously anybody who dies at 27, it's going to be a tragedy, but like they were really just getting started. Like, I think they could have been, you know, no one was ever going to be as big as Nirvana, right. but like, I think they would have, they definitely would have uh, scooped up some of that, like insane uh, alternative rock money mm. that was being like, you know the butthole surfers had a hit in the 90s <laughs> yeah so like the the Minutemen definitely would have had like they would have had at least their one like big massively selling like alternative album in mm-hmm. like 1995 if they had stuck around long yeah enough, and know? yeah boone d boone died in 85 so like that's like yeah. right like they could have absolutely just had more success um one thing would be so i'm just like bouncing around uh sure, yeah Minutemen stuff, but have you have you watched their documentary? I don't know if you mentioned. I it earlier. haven't. I'm. Okay. I really, really want to. I've heard it's excellent. That's We Jam Econo, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there is. There's. I'm just reading more about it and stuff. There is live performances of them. There's three. Hell yeah. So and one that was at the 9:30 Club in Washington from '84. Wow. Um, oh, they don't have a date, but it's 36 songs. Fuck. That they play. That's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah it's i yeah just talking about this stuff i yeah i'm definitely gonna try to seek out that documentary i'm just like yeah, if i could find it anywhere i don't even know i guess i go to the library first like i don't even know where i'd go first but uh, well one thing i've been listening to this album so much in uh in lead up to to mm-hmm. doing this that i haven't really like i haven't even really explored that much of their other stuff i really love their second record uh what makes a man start fires Mm. But like, other than that, and like a couple of EPs, I haven't really dug into like Mike Watt yet. And so I'm really excited to do that. So probably if you have me, if you ever have me on again, <laughs> that'll probably be my answer to what are you listening to lately? Max Perfect. Family. That's, that's wonderful. That's a, Good that's talk. a good, yeah. it's a good, uh, foreshadowing of another finish the, yeah. the Jackson McDonald trilogy. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I already know. I think I already know what album I would pick too. Don't, third, so. don't spoil it. Um, I won't no. <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> thanks jackson for coming i'll just finish up there totally, um yeah about the length of the the album so there you go perfect um yeah where can people find you and your stuff right now uh well uh you can listen to roxy fever uh follow the show on twitter at roxy fever and uh you can follow me on twitter at fail son mcdonald but don't <laughs> <laughs> you could perfect. do it but don't <laughs> perfect uh perfect notion uh you can follow the podcast at big underscore shiny underscore goons Follow me at North Side Taint, or you cannot, um, and find my writing places. Uh, actually, again, okay. I'm going to be putting out an EP like, oh. very soon. So actually do follow me on Twitter so you can okay. see that. Everyone listening, follow Jackson on Twitter and listen to his EP. Yes. Perfect. Um, once again, thanks, uh, Jackson. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
I always have a good time. Thank you so much. 